The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to uh, Berean Bible Church. Um, You know, we finished John 15 and uh, actually started into 16 a little bit last week. And then um, this week I was reading 2 Samuel. And I was was reading 2 Samuel, I'm thinking of John 15. And so I'm kind of going to back up this morning, and we're going to hit a couple verses that we've already gone over, but I've entitled the message, Don't Get Burned. All right, now hopefully by the time I'm done here, you'll understand what I'm talking about, but I think this, you know, could be an important study for us this morning. Um, This chapter, 15, is very significant because it deals with the metaphor of the vine and the branches. And in this text, believers are commanded to abide in Christ. They are to bear fruit, which deals with the subject of discipleship. Fruit bearing is a mark of discipleship. We see that in John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. So to be a disciple is to bear fruit. To bear fruit is to be a disciple. And as I stressed over and over through John 15, there is a difference between a believer and a disciple. He says, if you keep my commandment, you will abide in my love. This is a third class conditional sentence, which means maybe you will, maybe you won't. So those who are clean, believers, may or may not keep His commandments. And if they don't keep His commandments, they will not abide in Him or in His love. See, it's not assumed that all believers will keep the commandments, that all all believers will abide in Him, that all believers will bear fruit. Now, the problem many have with this text is they don't see a difference between a Christian and a disciple. They just think they're synonymous, and hopefully after last week you see that there's a distinction there. They just kind of incorrectly think that believer and disciple are the same thing. But these terms are different. Two different groups of people. He tells those who are clean to abide. A person becomes a Christian when they understand and believe the Gospel. At that moment, they're placed into the body of Christ. They're given Christ's righteousness. They're indwelt by God. They're sure of heaven as if they were already there because they are in Christ. But disciple is something different. The Greek here, mathetes, literally means a learner or a follower. And I see discipleship as being a follower, a learner of Christ, but it's a conditional relationship that can be interrupted or terminated after it's begun. All Christians are called to be disciples. All Christians are called to be followers of Christ. But if you do follow Christ, you'll pay a price. Discipleship is costly. A follower of Christ will be living like Christ. So what happens if we don't abide? Well, in verse 5 and 6, Yeshua says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. Now, I see verse 6 talking about believers who do not abide in Christ and therefore they're taken away for disciplinary action 
by Yahweh. In other words, if as believers we don't bear fruit, if our life is characterized by persistent rebellion against the Lord God, then discipline takes place in the family of God. He says the branches are gathered, thrown into fire, and burned. Fire is a common symbol that occurs throughout the Scripture to describe judgment of both believers and unbelievers. So understanding it that way, then our Lord is talking about disciplinary action made necessary because those who are in the vine, believers, are not bearing fruit. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now in the text of John 15, 1-17, I see Yeshua as addressing His followers, His disciples. This chapter, this section is not addressed to unsaved people. It's not addressed to a mixed audience. It's addressed to believers and believers alone. The central theme of chapter 15 is not salvation, how it's obtained, or the danger of losing it. The theme is abiding in Christ. The theme is discipleship. The theme is obedience, all of which produce fruit. To not abide, to not be a disciple, to not live in obedience, is to not produce fruit and therefore to be disciplined. There are temporal consequences, believers, and I think so many believers don't understand this. There are temporal consequences to disobedience. If you do not abide, you will get burned. And by burned, I don't mean hell. You're not going to hell because you don't... A Christian is a Christian. He has eternal life. Temporal discipline. Temporally burned because of this. Now, to illustrate the fact that sin, disobedience, not abiding has serious temporal consequences, I want to look at the story of a great man of God and the severe price he paid for disobedience. King David was a great man of God. God said that David was a man after his own heart. Speaking of Saul, the Scripture says this, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Saul disobeyed. God said, your kingdom shall not continue. Yahweh has sought out a man after his own heart. And Yahweh has <clears throat> commanded him to be prince over his people because you, are, you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. So Saul's being replaced by David. And David is to be a man after Yahweh's own heart. Paul said this about David in Acts 13.22. And when he had removed him, speaking of Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now, commenting on a man after my own heart, and boy, there's a lot of discrepancy. What does this mean? What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Well, Albert Barnes, who I think has one of the best descriptions, says this. This expression is found in 1 Samuel 13, 14. The connection shows that it means simply a man who would not be rebellious and disobedient as Saul was, but would do the will of God and keep the commandments. This refers doubtless rather to the public than the private character of David. It's kind of important. To his character as a king. It means that he would make the will of God the great rule and the law of his reign. And contradistinction from Saul, who as king had disobeyed God. See, one of the characteristics that especially distinguished David's rule was he guarded the people, he guarded the nation from idolatry. 
He kept them faithful to the adoration of the pure and holy God of their fathers. And as we'll see, David had his failures. But I think the bent of his life was to love and to serve Yahweh. But then, there was Bathsheba. And I think we all know the story of David and Bathsheba. Very familiar story to most Christians. But what happened to David after he repented of the sin, I don't think is that well known. So let's look at what David's disobedience cost him this morning. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now in the spring, after the latter rains were over, it was customary to resume military activity. And David ordered Joab to launch an invasion of Rabbah, the capital of Ammon. And David was king. And under the blessing of God, he'd become a great king. One of the greatest kings on the earth. And although it was customary for kings to accompany their armies, they didn't always do so. And David, for some reason, not given in the text, remained in Jerusalem. Now at this time, David had been king for 17 years. He should have gone to battle with his men. That's what kings do. But instead, he stays behind and he sends Joab. Now, Joab was David's chief of staff. He was his four-star general, if you will. So let me give you a principle here that I think is true. And think about this. When you are where you shouldn't be, you become subject to temptations that you wouldn't experience if you were where you belong. There's places you just shouldn't go, and when you go there, there's temptations there that you wouldn't experience if you wouldn't have went there. You know, people fall into sin, and they're like, oh, I don't know how that happened. I do. Look where you were. That makes sense to me. Verse 2 says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. David is looking at a woman that he shouldn't be because he's supposed to be at war. Now, David had three beautiful wives, but he's tempted when he saw Bathsheba. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is it not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, instead of fleeing temptation, David pursues it. He should have done what Joseph did in Genesis 39. Okay, You know what happened with Joseph? Joseph was being pursued by his boss's wife. But one day, he went into the house to do work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house. She caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. That's a little bit forward there, right? But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled, and he got out of the house. Joseph went to prison for this, for doing the right thing. But he did the right thing. Temptation came, and he took off. This is how you're supposed to respond to temptation. Run. Flee it. Get away from it. Don't flirt with it. Well, David flirts with it. So David sent messengers and took her. He's a king. He can do that. And she came to him, and he lied with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. So you see what we have here? This is... Adultery. 
This great man of God just violated two of the Ten Commandments. All right? You shall not commit adultery. He did. Also, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. He coveted his neighbor's wife. Then he took her and he commits adultery. Now, notice the parenthesis at the end of verse 4. Why, does this tell, why is this told to us? Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Why do you think he lets us know that? Well, the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible says she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. This notice indicates that Bathsheba had just finished menstruating, eliminating any possibility that Bathsheba could have been pregnant by her husband thus complicating David's attempt to cover up his misdeed. In other words, the Scripture's letting us know she's not pregnant by her husband Uriah. Okay, that's clear. He's gone. And the woman conceived. So she gets pregnant by David. And she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David's sin had uh, caught up with them here and he gets in trouble. You know, it started by being where he shouldn't be, then he began to covet, then he commits adultery, and now she's pregnant. So what's he do? He confesses his sin, I'm sorry, Lord, how do we fix this? No, not at all. You know, many Christians would say, David must not have been a Christian when he did this. Any Christian that says that has got to have their pride meter pegged out at the top. You know, they think they're so spiritual, so good, that I would never do that. Can a Christian commit adultery? Yes, listen, apart from the grace of God, a Christian can can commit any sin that an unbeliever can commit. Most sins that are condoned by Christians are just as bad as David did, but we make our little categories, sins we don't do, these are bad. Sins we do do, not a big deal. Look at Proverbs 6, 16-19. This was a passage that I memorized early in my Christian life. There's six things that Yahweh hates. Seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes. That's pride. A lying tongue. More lying's mentioned twice in this text. That should tell you something how God feels about lying. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil a false witness that breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. What? Somebody who just stirs up trouble among the believers. That's, God hates that. You know, Christians lie, they slander, they cause discord, and they think nothing of it. But if you commit divorce, oh no, it's unpardonable sin. Where do we get these things? Alright, so David should have repented of his sin. I mean, when he heard that, she's pregnant, he should have said, oh my word. But he doesn't. And I think people, the longer we stay in sin, the worse things get. Because you just do get like David, you try to cover something up. And it just you just get in deeper. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Job sent Uriah to David. David figures, I'll get him back here, get him hooked up with his wife, we'll, we'll cover this thing up, we'll be slick, right? When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Job was doing. How are people doing? How's the war going? Man, David, what is wrong with you? He just acts like, hey, I just want to know how things are going in the war. The crisis pregnancy <clears throat> required some kind of resolution, so David determined to legitimize it. Let's get Uriah back here. We'll straighten this whole thing all out. 
Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and he did not go down to his house. Oh, David's like, what is wrong with this man? Sent him home, gave him a present. And Uriah argues, I'm not going to enjoy the comforts of home. I'm not going to spend time with my wife, be with my wife when my friends are out there in combat. I'm not going to do that. So when they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. David's probably like, what is wrong with you? And David invited him, and he ate in the presence and drank. David said, well, let me help this out. Let me get him a little wine here. So that he made him drunk. That'll fix it. We'll cut down his ambitions a little bit or his you know, prohibitions a little bit. He'll be all right. And in the evening he went out and lay on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go to his house. So David just can't get this man to do what he wants him to do. Even if he gets him drunk, he still has a sense of loyalty to his comrades, and he's not going to do this. So David says, okay, if you're not going to work with me here, I'm going to have to kill you. And this is, folks, this is not a you know, crime of passion, a heat of the moment thing. This, David's figuring this all out, okay? This is premeditated. This is first degree murder. In a letter he wrote, set Uriah, sending a letter to Joab, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. He gives this letter to Uriah to deliver. So he's carrying his own death warrant. Uriah wouldn't sleep with his wife, wouldn't help David cover this up, so David said, I'll just kill him. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So Joab did what David said. He put him to the forefront, they backed away, and he got killed. Now David's a murderer. He's broken another of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. So David, a man after God's own heart, commits adultery and he commits murder. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. Let me say here, people, that is a weak translation. Okay? The New American Standard says, But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of Yahweh. Not once in all this does David confess his sin. It just keeps piling up. He goes from one sin to another, keeps trying to cover things up, and he's not doing too well at it. All right? Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You want mercy? Deal with your sin. Confess it, forsake it. 
Now, just in case you think David's having a great time sending it up here, look with me at Psalm 38. In this psalm is written after David's time with Bathsheba, and David writes this, O Yahweh, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me. Your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. So he is feeling the judgment of God. He feels like a human pincushion. He's experienced pain. He's experiencing the loss of health. God's trying to get his attention. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longings before You. My sighing is not hidden from You. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. The light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and my companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snare. Those who seek my hurt speak of my ruin and meditate treachery all day long. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. Then finally, I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. Finally, David, he's had enough and he confesses it. Believer, the sooner we come to this point, the better off we're going to be. When you sin, don't try to cover it up. Confess it. Turn from it. That's how you abide in Christ. You just don't go on covering things up. 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess here is the Greek homologeo. Homologeo means to agree with another, to say the same thing. So basically you're saying, I agree with God, what I've done is wrong. That's what it means to confess it. Stop saying, it's okay if I do this. That's what David was doing. No, confess it. Willful disobedience breaks our communion with God. We want to live in fellowship. Well, let's continue on with David's story. God sent a prophet to David to confront him in his sin. You know, David just wasn't getting it, so he said, let me, let me send someone here to point this out to him. And Yahweh sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, now he's telling him a little story here. A king, I want you to hear this story. There were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. You got that? This guy's got a lot of flocks, got a lot of herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he bought. See the huge contrast here? This guy's got all kinds of flocks. This poor man has one. And he brought it up. And it grew up with him and with his children. You know, to see the point he's making here, this... There's affection here. There's love here, okay? It used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him, this little lamb that meant so much. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took 
the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. He took the poor man's lamb. See, he's a king. This story should grip you to your heart. And this case presented by Nathan, you know, may appear to have nothing to do with David's crimes. What's he, what's he talking about here? I mean, there's no adultery in this story. There's no murder in this story. What Nathan's case demonstrates is that adultery and murder were only the end results of a more serious crime. And that was abuse of his kingly power. He is formally indicted by the divine counsel speaking through the prophet Nathan. Not only for taking another man's wife, but for believing that he could take whatever he wanted. And being dissatisfied with what God had already given him. See, that was his problem. He wasn't happy. He had a bunch of beautiful wives. And he thought, I'm the king. She's pretty. I could take her. Then David's anger. Listen, David hears this story. He's listening intently. His anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as Yahweh lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He's right. What a hypocrite. He didn't see it. Because it wasn't, you know, he's thinking a lamb. He didn't put things together. You know, it's interesting how easily we can see the sin of everybody else before our own. David just pronounced judgment on himself. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. The only problem is, according to the law of God, you can't put someone to death for this crime. Okay? Well, let's back up a minute. James 2.13 says, For judgment is without mercy for the one who has shown no mercy. That's important, people. We're to show mercy. We've been given mercy. We're to show mercy. David didn't show. But instead, he wanted this man to die. Now watch what David says. He shall restore the lamb fourfold. Because he did this thing. And because he had no pity. See, he'd like to be able to put this man to death, but he can't do that because the law didn't allow that. Look at Exodus 22.1. If a man steals an ox or sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for sheep. Alright? So... I want you to focus on what David says in verse 6 there, 2 Samuel 12. He shall restore the lamb fourfold. Or he's going according to the law. This is what the law allows. He'd like to put him to death. But I'm going to give him the full extent of the law. He's going to restore this fourfold. All right. Nathan said to David, you are the man. I'm talking about you, idiot. This is a story about you and what you did. After he is confronted, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Then God goes on and reviews the grace he had demonstrated toward David. He had given David everything, but David wasn't satisfied. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms, and gave you your house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little... I would have added to you much more. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh to do what is evil in His sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, 
The sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The sword shall never depart from your house. Now notice what he says in verse 11. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he will lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Now, out of your own house, keep that in mind, and keep that in mind with verse 6. I'm going to raise up evil out of your house. He shall restore fourfold. Now, finally, David repents. He says to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So this is where we pick up from Psalms 38, 18, where David says he sinned. He confesses his sin. God forgives him when he confesses his sin. Notice what Nathan says in response to the confession. The Lord has put away your sin. You're not going to die. When we confess our sin, God forgives. When we agree with Him. This is sin. You know, now someone's bound to say, boy, David sure got away with a lot. I mean, he got to enjoy the pleasures of sin, and upon confession, God forgave him. Well, I think if you think that, first of all, you're forgetting about Psalm 38 and all the pain he went through and how miserable he was while in his sin. But secondly, you're forgetting, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. The law of the harvest is you reap what you sow. When David confessed his sin, God forgave him and restored him to fellowship. But this did not remove the consequence of David's sin. All right. Let's say that you go out and you get involved in sin. Let's say adultery or fornication, sex outside of marriage. And because of your sin, you contract AIDS. Then you confess your sin, and God restores you to fellowship. Does God automatically heal you of AIDS? No. I mean, He could, but the chances are good, you're going to die with AIDS. You say, but I'm forgiven. You're right, but the consequences remain. You reap what you sow. And we could pick up so many illustrations like this. People get involved in sin, and then something happens, and then they restore to fellowship, and the consequences still remain. I knew a man who was homosexual. He knew it was sin. He was raised in a Christian family. And he continued on, and he got AIDS. And uh, he died of AIDS, and I think he was like 77 pounds when he actually died. But he had just, but I remember talking to him, and he told me he had confessed his sin, he had got right with God, and he said to me, If God would heal me right now, I would tell him no. And he said to me, I would rather die in fellowship than live out of it. And he realized, you know, he said the sin was just too strong for me. I couldn't overcome it. So I'm, I'm doing good now, though. 77 pounds. Wasn't long before he went to be with the Lord. But he was happy in that condition because he was in fellowship with God. He wasn't in sin. Well, David paid way beyond what he experienced in Psalm 38. David was disciplined fourfold 
out of his own house. We see this in the following story continues in 2 Samuel. First of all, David's four-month-old child dies. Nevertheless, because this deed you have utterly scorned Yahweh, the child who was born to you shall die. And on the seventh day, the child died. So David's four-month-old child, the Bathsheba, dies. Listen, because of David's sin. Now think about that, parents. Can you imagine how you will feel if your child died as a result of your sin? This is something we must all understand, people. Our sin affects others. You don't sin in isolation. Whatever, when you sin, it affects those in your family. It affects those around you. Let's say your sin is drunkenness. Will it affect others in your home? Sure it will. You may be verbally or physically abusive to your family because of it. You may lose your job because of it and thus not be able to provide for your family. You may drive drunk and actually killing your family or somebody else. Our sin affects others. What if you commit the sin of adultery? Will that affect your family? Yeah, it sure will. Like I said, it could bring on an incurable disease, cause divorce, all kinds of problems because of our sin. Our sin affects others. And David's sin destroyed his family. Remember, fourfold, out of your own house. Amnon rapes Tamar. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. But he would not listen to her. She, so he comes up with this plan. You know, here's how I'll do this so I can rape my sister. And she says, don't do this thing. He didn't listen because he was stronger than she. And he violated her and he lay with her. And what happened as soon as he did that? He hated her. He says hatred for her was more than his love for her. He got what he wanted and it wasn't what he wanted. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. So David's son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister Tamar. David knew it was because of his sin. So we see death and we see sexual sin in David's household. And David is reaping what he has sown. And then Amnon is murdered by Absalom. After two full years, see, Absalom took his time. He was plotting this thing out again. You know, I want to make sure we get this right. He had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited the king's sons. Hey, I want all you guys to come. We're going to go shear some sheep. It's kind of a party type thing when that happened. Then Absalom commanded his servants. Okay, Mark Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have not I commanded you, be courageous, be valiant. Strike Amnon and kill him. So that's what they did. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. And while they're on their way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. I don't know how that story got twisted so fast. They didn't have a liberal news media at the time. You know, but somehow the story got back. All your sons are dead. 
David's discipline is severe. We can only imagine the great pain as his family is being destroyed right before his eyes. And he probably keeps thinking fourfold out of your own house. I pronounce this judgment on myself. As soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's son came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. And Absalom fled and went to Talamar. And the, so Absalom, he takes off. Alright, i got to get away from here now. because So he goes and he's, he's away for a while. And David mourned that day, every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. So he gets away, he's hiding, you know. And the spirit of the king longed to go after Absalom. David's missing his son. Because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Okay, I'm over it. <laughs> I'm over my dead son, and I want you back. Okay, basically, he, David really loved Absalom. Alright? <clears throat> and so that's the fourfold. Absalom is killed. David's own son. You know, Absalom gets back into town. He says, you know, bring, bring Absalom back. So he's brought back. And Absalom begins working on winning the support of the people. He's in the gate. He's shaking hands. He's making friends with everybody. He's weaning the people away from David. And then Absalom effects a coup. And David flees the city, running for his own life from his own son. But no matter what Absalom did, David loved him very much. And when the battle ensues, David calls his generals in and said, listen, deal gently with Absalom in battle. Absalom's trying to kill me. Absalom's trying to dethrone me. But deal gently with him. And they're probably thinking, what is wrong with you, David? Have you totally lost your mind? And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to the commanders, about Absalom. And like everyone knows, he's saying, we got to protect this guy. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth. While the mule that was under him went on, and a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in the oak. <laughs> and you're like... Well, did you leave him there? Why didn't you kill him? Oh, remember what the king said? I'm not going to be the one to do that. All right, so Job said, I'm not going to waste time talking to you about this. And he took three javelins in his hand and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom. While he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Job's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. I don't quite get that text because three javelins to the heart would probably do it. But I guess they want to make sure he's dead. And so they struck him and they killed him. All right? And so then they're taking word back to the king. All right? So the bat- we won the battle. Good news, right? Well, <clears throat> the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? First thing he inquires about the guy, Hey, how's my son? How's Absalom doing? Is he okay? Not, Did we win the battle? Did we lose? What's going on? And the Cushite answered, May the enemy of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved. He's deeply moved over the what? Absalom? And he went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he wept, he said, Oh, my son, 
Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would to God I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David is distraught over the pain that his sin brought him. He is grieving over this. I think David is wishing here that God would have killed him for his sin instead of all that's going on in his household. It was told Job, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. See, the commanders are just really upset about this. We just won a battle and you're weeping over it. That's not right. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son and the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. So there should come be coming back in victory where they come back with their heads down and they're, they're afraid to rejoice that they won. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom! Oh, Absalom, my son, my son! What could be more painful for a parent than years of pain watching their family destroyed because of their sin? David knew that that pain was his own fault. There's no question about that. David paid fourfold out of his own house because of his sin. He was held to a high standard because he was the king. His chastening was severe because his sin was severe. And God had a purpose in the discipline. He wasn't just punishing David. He was trying to teach David. He was helping David to grow and to mature. This is not God being vindictive. He said, David, you can't live like that and live in communion with me. You've got to deal with this sin. Look at Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastens every son whom He receives. Believer, mark it down. Sin brings discipline. Sin causes pain. Sin is destructive. Don't ever take it lightly. It's an affront to God. It's going to always cost us. Our salvation is secure. But God will chasten us in this life if we fail to walk in obedience to Him. Now some of you may be thinking, well, that's not a very uplifting, feel-good message. When have you ever known me to preach those? But that's, you'd be wrong, though, because this really is a, a feel-good message. Because if you turn from your sin un, because of this, if you live a life of obedience to God, if you abide in Christ, you'll feel good. You'll feel great. There's nothing like communion with God. There's no joy like the joy of abiding Sin brings discipline, but obedience brings blessing. Psalm 16.11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. People, I can't tell you how true this is. When you are in communion with God, there's a joy like no other. And it doesn't matter what circumstances are happening around you. In your presence is fullness of joy. David means here that nearness to God Himself is the only satisfying experience in the universe. God created us, and He created us to live in fellowship with Him. And only as we do that will we know true happiness. True happiness, true joy, 
only comes from abiding in Christ. To not abide is to get burned. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this illustration of David. Lord, help us to see how much you hate sin because of the damage it does to us. God, help us to understand that you are loving, caring Father who wants nothing but the best for his children and that you do discipline your children when they get out of line. Father, I pray that we would take this text in John 15 to heart. We'd realize the importance, Lord, of abiding in you, of keeping your commandments, abiding in your love, being disciples, producing fruit. Lord, thank you for your constant grace to us. May we learn from David's sin. May we learn from David's punishment. And confess our sin, turn from it, and walk in fellowship with you. Amen.